The Late Morning Program with Nam Ras Podcast. Hare Krishna, you are listening to the Late Morning Program with Nam Ras, the number one Hare Krishna podcast in the world. I'm here with Tukaram Prabhu. Tukaram Prabhu, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Nam. Yeah, so Tukaram Prabhu is a very interesting person, uh, and the topic of today is uh, spiritual. Uh, or entrepreneurship for devotees, Krishna conscious entrepreneurship. So Tukaram Prabhu is a very accomplished devotee with a, a huge list, uh, a resume in different uh, things that, that he does in his life. He's a temple president for two temples. He has a farm. He has a number of restaurants, a number of businesses. He has a huge family. He's a, a married man. And uh, it's just, I'm so excited to hear about your life. And I think you can inspire so many devotees by by you know sharing your story so let's start uh, prabhu with kind of how you got in contact with krishna consciousness or maybe before that where you grew up and how that was yeah um i was born and raised in los angeles and i grew up in west l.a not very far from the l.a temple um maybe 10 minutes from the l.a temple and i was raised just like a you know typical nominally Christian, materialistic, Los Angelino. <laughs> and, uh, and my mom's Serbian. And my dad is uh, the standard mutt mix of Welsh and English and German. That's sort of that mix that's quite common in the US. And uh, they both hail from St. Louis. And they came out here. My dad went to UCLA, got his master's in architecture from UCLA. And so they were living in Westwood and I was born at Santa Monica hospital and I was raised, you know, just, just like a regular old non devotee in LA. And then, uh, I, I met the devotees through a friend of mine whose name was Steve his name is Steve and another friend named John. And they were actually the people who sold me ganja. Oh, wow. So, and they brought me to the temple. And uh, they were devotees, maybe not super strict, but they, you know, they came to the temple on Sundays. They were members of the congregation. And uh, they brought me to the temple and I, they made me, they got me to be vegetarian and uh, they got me interested in chanting Japa and, and Kirtan and reading Srila Prabhupada's books and uh, offering my food and donating to the temple and taking darshan regularly of the deities and being friends with devotees and having them be my, my, my core group of friends. They got me to be sober. And then they also opened up the door for me to, to do business with them by also selling ganja myself. Oh, right. <laughs> and so that was, you know, I was 16 at the time. Oh, wow. And this was uh, in the late 80s in Los Angeles before cell phones. You know, I had a pager. And uh, if you even know what that is. Yes, yes, and, I do. Uh, yeah. 
and so uh, they got me involved in that. I guess that was my first business. Like, that was kind of like my lemonade stand, you know, my youth. <laughs> was selling ganja with these half sadikas, these, but who, you know, were the people who introduced me to KC. They were, they were really cool people. They were um, smart and philosophical on some level, and they were popular and, uh, and successful and well-to-do well and, and uh, artistic. They had a lot of fine qualities. And so I, I wanted to be like them, and I wanted to emulate them and follow in their footsteps. And, uh, you know, I got lucky because they were into some cool stuff. Anyway, they were also into the ganja thing. And so that became my thing too. And, uh, yeah, and that was, and that was when it was like illegal. It was a, you know, it was a dangerous right. business. Um, and so it was, it was, a, it was a, and a then when problem. did you, when did you move into the temple like full sure, time? Yeah, yeah, sure. So then I uh, eventually I gave that up and it just didn't work with, with my um, blossoming Krishna consciousness. And so I, I gave that up and then I, I joined the temple. Um, I actually joined Festival of India, which was interesting. I joined Festival of India in 1991 and my two boys, uh, my two oldest, who are 19 and 17, respectively. They just went to New York for the New York Rateatra, and they set it up in Washington Park. And they called me up and they said, Dad, you wouldn't believe this park. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's an all-night park. There was people beating people up and shooting heroin and, and just just getting crazy, like absolutely crazy in the park. And I, I had a, a, a kind of just a, thirty years ago, this year, practically to the day, I was in that same park setting up there at the Atra. Now I'm thirty years older. My boys are at the same age, more of us than I was. I was eighteen, so they're seventeen and nineteen. I was right in the middle, and they're doing the same service for Maduha Prabhu that I did. And they're and they're they're his they're his men. He flies them out to help him with various festivals, and you know is, is happy with me that I went and got married and had some kids to carry on the legacy of Festival of India. <laughs> but then what they were describing to me was you know something I'd seen thirty years prior in Washington Park, and I was it was it was far out. It was exciting. Amazing, amazing. And then, so the temple. Uh, so anyway, so then I, I traveled yeah. with Festival of India for some months. I wound up back in Los Angeles, and I distributed books in Los Angeles for several years. Then I moved to India for a number of years, and India was my base. I was on Padyatra in India. I also spent a lot of time in Vrindavan. I also spent some time in Delhi. Um, spent, you know, on Padyatra, you know, we were down in south a lot. We also went up north in the Himalayas. And so I have a... a pretty extensive background of traveling in India uh, for a number of years. And I did some Pujari work in Vrindavan also. And, you know, that went on. I traveled also and uh, spent time um, in Japan and distributed books there and also traveled around the world doing uh, fundraising 
um, through temple congregations and I studied fundraising for nonprofits and segued into that. This was always a brahmachari. And then uh, around 97, um, I met my wife in 95, but in 97 we got engaged. And so that was a, a transition for me. So that, you know, maybe uh, I met the boys in 88. And so then by 1997, I, um, um, I, I, tra I transitioned and got married and then stopped being a monk. And, and, uh, and yeah, I got together with my wife. Right. And you've been married for how many years? We've been together for, well, I met my wife 26 years ago, fell in love with her 25 years ago, got engaged to her 24 years ago, <laughs> and we've been married 23 years just last month. So Amazing. Married 23 years. And, you know, she's, um, I joined the temple kind of young, so I, I had a couple of girlfriends, but I never, um, I was never intimate with anybody before right. I joined the temple. And I was a brahmachari for a number of years. So my wife is my first and only love. Wow. I'm her first and only love. We've been successfully married without interruption since, since we got together. Amazing. She's got six kids. Six kids. Wow. Six kids, ages 19 to three and a half, four boys and two girls. And, uh, yeah, so I want to I, I want to touch on the marriage later, but I want to first talk a little bit about the transition between brahmachari to grahasta because I get this question a lot from brahmacharis who are transitioning: how to transition properly, how to transition in a way that because we see sometimes transitions either go well or they don't go well. They they either become they stay kind of that's like a, that's a tautological statement. They either go well or they don't go well. There's <laughs> a meaningless statement philosophically. Sorry, but sorry. We, that's okay. But we, we do see that people have a hard time. Yeah, yeah. Well, because we, you know, we have both married and unmarried priests in our movement. And that's, it's not atypical, but it's, it's not necessarily typical. If you look at Protestant Christianity, they do not have monastics. If you look at Mar uh, Catholicism, um, they don't have married priests. You can be a deacon, which is sort of a first introductory level, but it's not really the priesthood. Um, if you look at the Orthodox tradition, they do have both married and unmarried priests. That's the tradition I was raised in this, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Right. Um, and, but for the most part, you know, when you look, you know, there's no real Jewish monastic order um they have the they have the fakirs kind of the hindu muslim fakirs and some sects of sufism where there might be some uh, monastics but for the most part if you look at the the major schools of jurisprudence in islam they're all married mm. and so um when you look at the world's religions it, it tends to be married priests or monastics, and usually you don't have this uh, permeable membrane between the two. And so our tradition is different. You're a, an unmarried priest to start, 
and then you become married later on in life and that's not considered to be a bad thing to move from being a monastic to being a married priest whereas obviously for in catholicism it would be a fall down or in, in any even like in the sannyasa order would be a fall down too in hinduism um so that means you've got to master that art of moving from being a fully celibate monk to being a monogamous married person right you, you got to learn to, to to turn on intimacy in all of its shades both just straight sex life as well as emotional intimacy um and so and if you're you know if you're working from a, a heterosexual paradigm then intimacy with a member of the opposite sex and which you would have not spent so much time with as a married as an unmarried as an unmarried man as a as a, as a monk you wouldn't have spent so much time uh, with members of the opposite sex and so it's a new thing there's a learning curve um i think traditionally you go back to your family so you're living in a gurukul you're doing some missionary work and this is also true even if you look at uh modern day mormonism and then you go back to your family after a set period of time right and so for us it's around the age of 24 25 um, there's no hard and fast rule, but that's the that's the gold standard. That's what I did. Um, and then you you go back to your family, and you have a mom and a dad who help you to make that transition. And um, we don't always have that because you know my family isn't devotees, right? And so I got you know I was I was really committed to the Hare Krishna lifestyle and the Hare Krishna ethic and then the, the whole kit and caboodle. And, and then you got to get married and you don't have any immediate elders to look up to. I mean, people are from broken homes. There's that. So your parents might not even still be married. Um, but then uh, additionally, you, you don't relate to your family as much anymore because they, they may not be vegetarian. They may not be theistic. They might not believe in your conception of divinity. They might not be sober. I mean, it's just, just so many things, both philosophical yeah. and cultural and lifestyle-wise, where there's not a lot of there's, there's not going to be a lot of commonality there. So then you're left on your own. You're left on your own, and you got to uh, you got to figure out how you're going to make your way. Yeah. And so that's, that was, that was rough for me. I didn't have any immediate role models. Also, we have a thing where we, our gurus are generally monastics, which also isn't traditional. Traditionally, sannyasis and vairagis, babajis, whatever the, the name that was used for the renunciates. I mean, there was the Kations of the Vedas, the long-haired, wild-haired Kations, and there was a, uh, the Shramans. And so there was all these different groups of ascetics that existed in the Vedic topography, spiritual topography for, for all time by a variety of names. But if you look at our thing, it's, it's our version of Vairagis, it's, it's Babajis and Sannyasis. Um, they're not supposed to be gurus. They're not supposed to be gurus. Married people are supposed to be gurus because the people that they're ministering to are all married 
and they're more, I mean, they're able to mix more with those people. There are exceptions, but it's just, it's, it's right there in the Shastra that sannyasis shouldn't take too many disciples and, and the sannyasis have to make disciples simply so they can maintain the deity worship. Mm. And the deity worship is meant for grihastas. And that's, that's why the Goswamis had all had a bunch of disciples. That's all those Goswami families are their Grihasta disciples that they made so that they could establish deities and have that have that go on in perpetuity. They had to correct this. And so if you look at the Nityananda Vanksha and the Advaita Vanksha, the Gadadhar Pariwar, these these are traditions generally of, of married priests who then are, you know, they they've got a spouse and, and they've got children and they're able to guide people as they grow into that ashram themselves as they make that transition themselves we don't really have that in the Hare Krishna movement um, and so you've got to either have a friend that you look up to yeah or you've got to pioneer it and do it your own which usually means you you, you, you get some scratches and, and some bruises along the way right so I didn't really have um, I didn't really have too many people to look up to as married priests, and so I ended up figuring it out through the school of hard knocks. Mm-hmm. By Krishna's grace, I never fell down, and there was no interruption to my wife's marriage and mine. And we we both been faithful to each other, and we're we're thick as thieves and have been since day one. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, I think that's, I think I probably have some decent karma in that regard, but I also think my wife has some remarkable character and that, that right. also helped a lot. What, what kind of, um, what kind of made you sure that she was the, like you've only been with her and she's only been with you. So what kind of made you uh, like sure about that? What made you sure about that? Because people who are transitioning I'm into not, you aren't. How can you be sure? I was twenty-four. How can I be sure? Anyway, yeah. let me let me rant for just another minute. So <laughs> as, sure. as a result of, of of going through the school of hard knocks yeah. and having to figure it out on my own, I try to mentor young people and help them make that transition. And yeah. If you want to know how to make that transition, find people who are respectable and mature and wise and then let them mentor you and they'll shorten your learning curve. And so in terms of you asked, how do you, how do you make the transition? It's an apprentice system. You need to have elders and you need to have masters and those masters should be married. I cringe every time somebody tells me that they went to a sannyasi for marital advice. Right. I mean, I mean don't get me wrong. I, I, I run to my gurus for everything, and many of them are sannyasis. And but they always defer when it comes to the marital stuff. <laughs> and 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 it's like a it's like they I, I don't want to be bigoted, but it's like a euro thing. You run to your guru for all your marital problems, and you get this advice from a sannyasi who's never had a romantic relationship, and they give you this really stuffy, detached advice on, 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 you know, what to do and it ends up not working and, right. and, and you know, disaster ensues. And so I think that we either need to find mentors that we can look up to. And then if we're at a certain age and seniority, we need to be those mentors for the next generation. 
And a few generations in, you'll have that where people are second, third, fourth generation. There's a number of people at different levels in their 40s, 50s, 60s who've seen and done it all. And you'll have a lot of people to choose from to guide you. And when I joined, it wasn't quite that hadn't quite happened yet. Yeah. And so I wasn't there in the very beginning. So there was something, but I, I, you know, a lot has changed in the 30 years since I met the devotees, 30, 30 some odd years since I met the devotees. So I try to mentor young people who are making that transition to help them have a more streamlined and, and softer experience than I did. Uh, in terms of how did I know that my wife was the one? I didn't. I mean, I got lucky. How, how much can you know at the age of 23 or 24? And so life's about taking risks. And so you, you, know, you meet somebody and you, you bet on some horses and they win. And yeah. not to say my wife is a horse, <laughs> but she bet on me too. And so I'm also a horse she bet on. And so you, you can't know. You're, you're, you're guessing trajectories. You're, you know, you're looking for some key result, some key data points, and you're making a conjecture based on that and then pressing play and seeing what happens. I think that if you know yourself, then you're going to know what you need. You're going to know what's a detail and what's a deal breaker, what are essential features in a life partner. Because if you know yourself, that gives you a leg up. And I think my brahmacharya experience by the grace of my elders was pretty good and i was able to learn a lot about myself that helped yeah and then um so that's one thing you got to know yourself and then you can know what you need to look for and then the second thing is if you have integrity then you make a promise and keep it i mean staying married and being successful in married life is pretty simple you promise to stay married and be with one person and only one person follow the rules of your ashram and then you do it and so commitment is really the um, the grease that makes the whole machine work whenever my wife and i meet people and like oh we never fight we always think oh you guys will never make it <laughs> we start taking we start taking we start taking bets on how long it'll last <laughs> so sometimes my wife's like We've been fighting every day for 25 years and we're still going strong. And so it's not quite that bad because my testosterone level has gone down over the years. It's not quite that bad anymore. But we, you know, we have a robust and spirited uh, interaction on a daily basis and we don't always see eye to eye. And but we're committed. My wife's committed and I'm committed. And so that. That's everything. So I, if I was going to say it's a kind of two things. Number one is know yourself so you know what you need. And then number two is be committed. And those two things together I, I give you a leg up. They give you a high percentage chance of success. And then something which is even more valuable than either one of those things is having good elders. Because if you have good elders, they're going to help you know yourself. They're going to help you stay committed. They themselves are the embodiment of commitment. They're the avatars of commitment. They right. personify commitment. And so you, you're in touch with them and you're plugged into, you know, unlimited commitment that you can draw from. Mm. 
I love that. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to ask you about now. Um, I want to get into the spiritual entrepreneurship and and that, and that topic a little later. But I, for right now, I want to ask you about your children. I appreciate and I I love seeing you as an example of like someone who had many children and very successful grahasta. But I I know some devotees ask why so many children. Maybe you can kind of. Was there a reason why not one or two? And yeah, I'll, six, I'll, you know? I'll answer your question. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> My wife and I have never used contraception. Wow. And so for us, that's part of our commitment. Right. And so the result of not using contraception is that you have large families. And so people having few children, I think generally speaking, means that they're using contraception and they're, they're, you know, they're figuring out like that. I don't think everybody's just, you know, voluntarily ex uh, uh, exercising incredible sannyas-like restraint. Right. So I want to be pious. And so piety as a married person means either A, restraint, or B, relatively large families. Right. And some, I think everybody's just full of it. They don't, I mean, this is kind of obvious, it's not even math, it's arithmetic. Yeah. And I, so I don't know, I, I get this question so many times, and I'm always stunned by the, willful ignorance of the question <laughs> so yeah we got six kids because we're faithful and we've been married a long time and we're strict in the, in the sense that we don't use contraception wow yeah that's I just, like drop i can just drop the mic now right <laughs> yeah we could stop there i mean that's a that's great. You know, I, I personally really respect you for that. And and uh, as a young younger Huss has only been married, you know, a little for a little while now. We we like big. We we want a big family too. So that's really awesome that uh, there are devotees like yourself who are. They're they're relatively easy to make, bro. Right. <laughs> good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, and um, how has it been? I know we can make this into a whole podcast about raising children, but any tips for devotees who have young children? Uh, if you can speak a little bit on raising children, just for a little while, so we can get into the main topic. But if you want to touch on that, like in a sutra or something, you know. Great, yeah. <laughs> Mark, Mark Twain is famous for saying, "I." I wrote you a long letter because I didn't have time to write you a small one, a short <laughs> one. So you're like asking me a big topic. And you're like, and could you just say it in five words too? Yeah, no, no, we'll do another one. We'll do another one with that the actual um, topic. As far but. as as far as raising kids go, um, I mean, I I like a guy named Jim Fay who wrote a bunch of books called Love and Logic, and I have parental theories that I adhere to both secular as well as things I've 
come up with and I try to give my kids some, some spiritual life and make KC fun and all that stuff. But if I want to boil it down to a sutra, if you and your spouse stay committed, your kids will be okay. You want to ruin your kids? Get divorced. Interrupt your marriage. You want to raise good kids who, who come out of, you know, their childhood relatively unscathed? Stay married. Show up. Hang out with your kids every day. Be around. Yeah. Maybe you're a little rough around the collar, or maybe you're, you know, you're on the other side, and you're, you, you tend to be a little too laissez-faire, and or maybe you're, you're, you're a little too involved or not involved enough. Um, you're a little heavy-handed, or you don't, you don't, you, you don't, you know, have a, a, a strong hand to guide them. Um, but if you just show up every day and stay committed, which is the answer to a successful marriage then that commitment to that marriage becomes a commitment to the fruits of that marriage, namely your children. And so there's one ring to rule them all. Stay committed, don't get divorced, pick one person, then stick with them. And then you'll be a good parent and your kids will come out okay. I love it. We will definitely- that, I tried what I did there, just in case you didn't see that. It was, it was a bit sexy. <laughs> what, I did there, what I did there was I gave the same answer to your question about kids that I gave to a successful marriage. Yes, you which did. Has the, which has the elegance of being one answer to two questions, which right. is Krishna's very definition of cleverness, that you can accomplish many things with one thing. You are clever for, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's great. We're going to do a whole nother podcast on that because I, I really want to hear more elaboration on that. But let's talk a little bit about this, about your different projects that you're doing. So when did you become, let's start from the beginning of when did you become temple president? In let's Laguna just Beach? say this as a disclaimer. Yeah. I, I that entrepreneur thing. I, it was mine. Yeah, it was you. It felt <laughs> a bit ostentatious for me. <laughs> and I, you know, and I, I do have a few businesses I run, so and, yeah. I, and the businesses did involve taking some risk, which is sort of a defining feature of an entrepreneur. Right. Um, but when I think of myself and, and what I, I do that's cool is it's not what I do for money. Um, it's that my hobby is, you know, my, my, my volunteer thing, my side hustle that doesn't make me money is really what I live for. There, there's this idea that you, you, we need to monetize what we love doing so that you work every day and you're always in a state of flow and you know, but you've never worked a day in your life because you love what you're doing. And it's, you know, right. it's based on tenets of positive psychology and, 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 and the, the whole um, strengths and virtues character strengths and virtues um, that, that has come out of positive psychology over the last couple of decades, which is really just a fancy version of the vocational test we might have taken in high school, where you see what you're interested in and what you're good at and mm -hmm. what you can make money doing and what helps the world. And you make a Venn diagram of all those intersecting circles. And in the middle, there's what you should do for money, what your career should be. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that. Um, I think you can do that. And the people who are able to do that, 
I think I think they're really cool. And I, I appreciate people who do that. Like my friend Raghunath, who I have so much love and respect for, he preaches and teaches people about Krishna consciousness. And that's what he does for money. And I'm just in awe that he's able, like what I do, I have to go out and make money so I can do what I love doing. Right. But he makes money doing what he loves doing. And I think that's just amazing. I like, I have so much appreciation for that. And when I see people who are able to be artists or they're able to do what they love, they love working with wood and they're able to teach kids how to work with wood and they're a wood shop teacher. I, that, that integration between their interests and their, and their work and how they come together like that. I think that's a beautiful thing. That marriage. Yeah. That's not what I've done. I, I, I run businesses that are relatively congruent with my value system. So I have a vegan restaurant and a vegan boba shop as opposed to, uh, um, you know, running a meat restaurant or something like that. So I have, I have things and we offer our food and we have deities in the restaurant. I'm kind of shameless about my Hare Krishna-ness. Um, and it works. And, uh, um, and so I, uh, I, um, I try to run businesses that are relatively congruent with my value system so that I'm not hating myself and feeling torn between my ethic and my money. Um, but my life is about doing service, being a pujari, being a priest, and uh, serving in ISKCON and um, mentoring people. And I, I could have tried to turn that into a, a career, but I, I like the priest thing better because I can say what I think and people don't buy me. Whereas if you're a therapist and, or you're even a life coach um, or something like that, kind of a, a therapist without the degree, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, your people are paying you and that muddies up the relationship substantially that's why Chanakya lived outside the kingdom and that's why he made Chandragupta come and see him and that's why Bhishma and Drona had to fight on the Korova side because they ate that food from Duryodhana's kitchen right and so I like the freedom of being a priest where my fidelity is to our tradition and I, I can speak my mind and, and, and uh, yeah, I can speak my mind with people and pick and choose who I want to counsel and, and uh, there's a certain freedom that, that comes with that. And, uh, and but I, therefore I don't make money doing it. And so for me, there's two models. There's the model of make the Venn diagram with the four intersecting circles of what you love doing, what you're good at, what you can make money doing, and what's good for the planet, and find that sweet spot in between and try to make a mint doing that. And that's cool. And that's, you know, if you watch IG, if you watch Instagram, that's like, that's, that's what everybody's supposed to be doing. And so 
But for me, there's another model, which is what I do, which is where I have a way to make money and, and support my family that's relatively congruent with my ethic and my, and my values. And then I spend most of my time doing volunteer work, which is what I love doing, what I'm passionate about. And so my hobby is my life. My, 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 the thing people do on their weekends is what I'm trying to do every day of my life. Wow. And I, and I, and I don't think that's wrong. And I think that might be a more, uh, I think that, that actually it, it probably is going to be more typical and more the norm if people, you know, actually try to put into practice living a life of integrity. It's not that everybody's going to be go and become like a life coach and do that. And I, I do try, you know, I, I take people to India now. I do trips to India. And I felt guilty about that because Raghunath is my hero and he was doing those trips. But I, 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 I asked him what he thought and he was like, go and do it. And so now I take people to India. And so I make a little bit of money doing that. I'm taking people to India every year, which I love doing. It's like my favorite thing. And I make money doing it. I just, I can't even wrap my head around it. It's like, oh my God, I would do this. I would pay to do this. <laughs> and, I, and, and I make money doing it. It's like going to Tirtas is just, uh, and, and the taking people and introducing them to the holy place I fell in love with as a young man that, that have affected my life so much and have like brought right. so much richness into my life and introducing them to the people and the places and, and things like Gunga Devi and, 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 and the deities and, and the temples and the tradition and the samadhis of the tombs of our, of our great lineage and Govardhan and Radhakund and like these places and, and exotic India too, the Himalayas and in all their glory and the snow peaked mountains and stuff like that. I mean, right. and so uh, across the board, I'm, I'm in love with all things India and I'm in love with that culture and our tradition and I'm in love with the history and the architecture and, and, and the culture and, 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 and the drama and the literature and the language and to be able to share that with people. And then they give me money for doing it. I'm just like, and I feel justified in it because it's a, it's a tour. And so I'm a, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm taking people on a pilgrimage. So it makes sense. But that's like, that's been magical. And I, I you know, Raghunath encouraged me and guided me in that. And, and it, uh, um, that was it was a a, a a really beautiful addition to my portfolio, but for the most part, and I think this is what's true for most people, we find something we do that works with our psychophysical nature, that's congruent with our ethic, where we don't hate ourselves and hate our job, and we're not miserable, and it's yeah. not this bogan tiag of work Monday to Friday and then try to forget about it on Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, but then we just have a really rich hobby life and a really rich side hustle and a really rich church life and a really rich community of friends that we love spending time with. And that's, that's who we are. And I think that model, I think that model is, 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 is actually should be the norm and not the fancy dancy highfalutin, you're going to make money doing exactly what you love to do. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. When you say, when you say volunteer, do you mean like your service at the temple? Yeah. I don't get paid for being a priest. So, yeah. All right. 
How so, is I mean, what do I mean? I mean doing outreach program, going to yoga studios and teaching people about right about spirituality, lecturing on ancient texts, going to college campuses, lecturing on ancient texts, um, doing programs that are our flagship or our satellite temples, managing the farm, and arranging for there to be fruits and flowers grown for our deities, taking care of cows and doing cow protection, arranging for a hymsa dairy to come to our to our temple for all of our rituals. Right. Um, you know, watching people, I mean, that's, an, I guess there's one other thing too. So the other thing is for me, my personal success is a small part of the equation. I get just as much happiness out of watching the people I love thrive. And so I spend a ton of my time helping people to succeed in their own lives and make really good money doing something they feel good about doing and having a really rich you know, uh, volunteer life in their own regard or pulling, you know, pulling the, the, the magic trick of managing to monetize what they love doing and what they were put on God's green earth to do. And so for me also, a huge part of my volunteer life is mentoring young and, and old people in how to thrive in their own life and be happy and find integration in their own life. And when one of my students or one of my people succeeds, for me, that's just as much of a success as me personally doing something. Right. And if I can, if I can be supporting them and I watch them spread their wings and fly, I get like a like a like a really high level of satisfaction out of that. Being able to be a part of somebody else's journey. Right. And you've started another temple. Like, how many satellite temples do you have? I know I've been to Long Beach. No, before. we just got we just got the one. I'm not that fancy, but I'm pretty proud of that. You know, when you're like I'm an entrepreneur with many businesses, I thought, hey, man, what my wife said she was like, what about your many temples? How come he's not writing about that? And so I, yeah, I, I'm, I take care of the Laguna Temple. I, I wound up there when I was 26. You asked me how old I was. I was 26 when I became a temple president, and so it was 1998 when I first landed. 26. And I've been in Laguna for 23 years now. So I'm 49. I just turned 49. I was 26 when I landed in Laguna. And uh, wow. And as I've served these deities for, for 20, 23 straight years. And I'm, I'm really happy. I, I have very, um, I have a lot of love for these deities. And I, and I love serving them. And I feel blessed to have been called here. I actually have a wild story that's just for Please. Yeah, please. Sorry, Krishna's. <laughs> I, I used to hang out with Iandra back in the early mid nineties and he took a shine to me and we would talk for like four or five hours a day when I was living in Vrindavan and I'd stay up late with him and he'd cook and we'd finally make the offering to the deities. It was super late at night and then we'd, we'd take Prasad together and, um, and we'd talk about everything under the sun and I think he liked me because I was uh, I was a little clever, and so he he liked hanging out with me and talking shop with me. Yeah, and we were we like like I said we were we spent a lot of time together. Um, and he one time, I was I was a pujari, and you know it's really cool being a pujari. My the first time I ever got on the altar was in Vrindavan. And being a Pujari in Vrindavan is really far out because the first thing you do when you go on the altar, everybody, there's like a dozen, 15 Pujaris on the altar in the morning. So it's, it's wild. You jump on the altar and you know, the, the doors close after Mangalarti and you know, 
15, maybe even 20 priests jump up on the altar to do the worship on the three separate altars, each one of which has multiple pujaris. And, uh, and it's just, it's a whole thing. But the first thing everybody does is they go up to all the deities and they touch all their feet. So as a pujari, you're allowed to just walk up to the deities and you're, you're allowed to touch their feet. So I just blew my mind being able to touch Radha Shamsundar's feet and being able to touch Krishna Balaram's feet. I only worship Gornatai right. on the altar. But, you know, just to go up and just touch the feet of the deity uh, as, you know, as I'm walking over the Gornatai's altar. And it's just like this little thing that happens every morning where all the pujaris come in to do their service and they quickly check in, touch the feet of the deity. <laughs> um, we were doing the... <laughs> We were doing the uh, uh, the Maha Abhishek in, in in Mayapur some years ago, and I've, I've I've been a part of that twice now, where I was up on the altar, and I I they always bring me in to do security, but then at some point I got to start lugging the large vats of auspicious ingredients to bathe the deities, huge thirty-five gallon drums, and we got to lug them up. So, and the stairs are all slippery because they're all covered in oil and, and honey and liquids. Yeah, honey and stuff. And so <laughs> they're super slippery. I mean, the ghee is what really makes them slippery. But anyway, the honey is not the problem. It's the ghee. But they're just covered in liquid. And you're, sl- you're carrying these 35-gallon drums and you're slipping inside trying not to crack your neck. And then there's always those bunch of sannyasis up there. So you got to help them up and down so they don't crack their, their skulls on the way down. Um, that was actually the last time I ever spent with Bhakti Charu Maharaj. Was, was up oh, there's a picture of that, right? You're doing the Abhishek together yeah. on your Instagram, I think. Yeah. yeah. So I help him up and down the steps. So anyway, um, and so yeah, that's like a big service. So anyway, I, I kind of end up like getting closer and closer. And all of a sudden, I'm on the scaffolding, and I'm assisting people <laughs> with the with the, with the Mahabhishek. It kind of works like that. And then, you know, it finishes up, and then you're, 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 uh, there's all a bunch of flower petals on the feet of the deities and the deities are, you know, maybe up to their mid calf. So they're like eight foot deities and they're up to their mid calf. So it's like several feet of flowers and you have to clear them all off of the deities so they can, they can start to dress them and, you know, and then, and then restore the worship to its normal, you know, to its normal course. So the deities are standing in, in flowers up till their mid calf, maybe not quite their knee, and, 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 and you have to clear all that off of them. And so everybody runs down and, and clears it off. So I, you know, I ran down, I said, jumped down from the scaffolding and then started clearing off all the, all the flowers. And I was with uh, uh, my friend Madhav Garanga Prabhu who was in charge of the Guru Kul there and whose, whose crew was in charge of the, 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 the mechanics of the Abhishek. And, um, and I, you know, I just did what I, I would normally do in Vrindavan. I just sort of shamelessly and, you know, just started putting my, to going to each deity. And as I clear the flowers off, going to each deity and putting my head on the feet of the deity. Because I was there and it was, I was right there. And I'm on my hands and knees clearing stuff off. And my head's right there and their yeah. feet are right there. So I just dove in on all five deities. See, normally, like, maybe you do it on one. But I just went to each of the five deities. I, I looked over and, and uh, the... The minister of deity worship was looking at me like, like, with a, with a uh, I wouldn't say he gave me the evil eye because he's not an evil person, but he was looking <laughs> at me like, what are you doing? 
and you know, I gave him a wink and a nod, and, and then went back to it. Took took my moment. Right. Um, but anyway, I was so this touching the deities in Vrindavan is so special. And I was talking to my Indra Prabhu, and I said, I really want to worship Radhe Shyam. You know, I was a young, twenty-four-year-old Brahmana doing puja in Vrindavan, studying Sanskrit, and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be. Radhe Shams Pujari. And uh, and there's a little detour we're gonna take in a second, but sure. Um and I Andrew who told me he says you need to spend many, many years worshiping Gornatai, and then you'll be able to worship Radhe Sham. And then somehow or other, like, you know, a couple of years later, I wound up in Laguna Beach and I've always felt like I got, that's what I've, I've been allowed to do that. I mean, I don't know if he, you know, how, but it was prophetic. It'll spend many, many years worshiping Gornatai and then you'll worship Radhe Sham. And so uh, I've spent my, you know, the majority of my adult life worshiping Panchatattva, which is Gornatai plus their associates. And, you know, my realization is Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was Radha and Krishna. And so as I worship him, I'm able to worship Radhe Sham. And so, uh, wow. anyway, I said that, I, that everybody's all, all, all about Iandra the last decade or so, last 20 yeah. years or so. So that's, that's one of my Iandra stories. Great. Wow. And then just to wrap it all up and throw a little romance into the equation. When I was living in Vrindavan, I, had, as I was, I was, a brahmachari and my, I asked my guru if I could get married and he said go to Vrindavan and live there and be a pujari and, and we'll wait a, a year and see what happens and so you know that was my marching orders and I was a I was a relatively faithful disciple so even though that wasn't what I wanted to do I did what I was told right and while I was there I was really torn up because I'd fallen in love with my wife but had never spoken a word to her I mean, we talked, but we never talked romantically. And I had this fantasy that, you know, that, that she would be the girl I ended up marrying. And I was in Vrindavan and worshiping deities. And I just, you know, it was felt unsettled. And my mind was disturbed because I, I really wanted to move forward in my married life. But I was being held back. And so I just, you know, I just... I prayed to Radha Sham Sundar, you, you work it out, you figure it out. I'm gonna continue serving you and, and doing my service here, and then you make it all happen. And there was a, there was a, a whole thing that happened um, where the whole thing magically worked out. So I also feel like being a good brahmachari and being faithful to your service and your gurus and your elders then they bless you, and then you get to move forward in your life, and, and you do so in a way that's pious and legitimate and blessed and successful. And so that's the other If I was going to add one thing to the commitment thing that makes for a good spouse, yeah. and makes for a good parent, makes for being a good spouse, a good parent, being committed to your elders and being committed to your service is is the magic that, that that you know sprinkles fairy dust on the whole thing and makes the whole thing successful what do you mean by being committed to your elders following your vows right 
doing what they ask you to do, being a part of their mission, picking up the cross and following them, taking responsibility to carry on their legacy. Yeah. Becoming like them, emulating them, deeply imbibing their lessons, allowing their example to transform you. Wow. Yeah, a lot to think about when it comes to uh, following elders and, and, you know, commitment and things like that. Yeah. Back to the, you know, I know you said entrepreneurship is not exactly describing it, but that was kind of like a clickbait. Anyway, I'm really, I'm really proud of our Long Beach project because yeah. I inherited the Laguna Beach temple and, and, you know, and, and have been taking care of it, but it's, it's Khan's temple. And you know, and, and it existed before me, it'll exist after me, and I'm a steward for that temple. And I mean, I'm in ecstasy to be able to do that. And it's like the greatest blessing of my life. Um, but we started a project in Long Beach, halfway between LA and Laguna Beach. And we started that thing from scratch. And, you know, one of our devotees owns a really nice yoga studio there. I own a restaurant there. I just opened a boba shop and bakery there. We've got an ashram there and we've got a temple there as well. And, and we've got, you know, a community there and a congregation that's growing. And, and you know, we, you know, I, I count like one of the metrics I use is how many people we get initiated per year. And so about 20 to 30 people every year get initiated in our joint yatra between Laguna and Long Beach. And, and the farm is the farm is down south, and that's um, that provides us with flowers and, and and dairy and vegetables for the temple in in Laguna. We're the first temple in the world that went cruelty free. Let me just say that again. We are Iskand Laguna Beach, the first Hare Krishna temple on planet Earth that ever went 100% cruelty free with our dairy. Amazing. Other temples buy ghee outside or they use some outside this or that. We don't use any of it. We only use the stuff that comes from our protected cows for doing our ritual and our worship. And that's it. We've been like that for well over 15 years now. And, um, and uh, somewhere between 15 and 20 years now. And I checked. We were before the farm in Hungary, before the manor before Mayapur, before Vrindavan, before <laughs> And if you want to quote Chalpati to me, I got on Maj's case to go cruelty-free. That's like, that was, that <laughs> happened <laughs> a, a year or two before they went cruelty-free. And so... Why did, why did you feel that was something important to, uh, you know, go towards? It was important to Prabhupada. And it's also just not above and beyond because what's important to Prabhupada is important to me, but, but along with it being important to Prabhupada, it just doesn't make any sense for us to say that we love cows and then to buy products from cows that are being slaughtered and not muscle up and take responsibility to just take care of cows. I mean, Prabhupada said New Vrindavan in 67 for the express purpose of protecting cows. Yeah. Yeah. He was he was he was he was he was writing letters to his GBCs in the mid 70s saying every temple should have a farm and get all its dairy from that farm. He said half my mission was book distribution. The other half 
is farming. The whole Varna Ashram thing is farming. Prabhupada says that. The full expression of Varna Ashram is on the farm. Farms, Prabhupada says, means cows. Cow protection is the essence of the second half of Prabhupada's legacy. It forces us to be ethical and to enter into a mutualistic relationship with the world and to grow our own food, to take care of cows, to be an urban mission, but that actually believes in simple living and high thinking. Something Prabhupada talked about before he even came to the U.S. That simple living and high thinking quote is, is from the 50s. Before right. even he's before he even landed in the U.S., and so um, uh, we need to have integrity. And so the example I give, the, the thought experiment I like to do is: imagine a situation where there were women, and those women were enslaved, and they produced very beautiful art. And so then you buy that art they produce to decorate the temples. But by buying that art, you perpetuate their bondage because there's a supply and demand going on there. Right. And to really understand the full example, and then those women are raped. And if they have a male child, it's killed. And if they have a female child, it's raised and enslaved and taught to produce the same art. This is illegal. I mean, it's, we, we look at child labor laws and we look at the way countries treat their workers and we cancel companies that, you know, that, that, that have a, a terrible policy of, of, of workplace safety and compensating their workers, unless you make iPhones and then we give people a free pass. Right. Um, for the atrocious conditions and, and, and the Chinese factories that produce iPhones. But we we're up in arms about this. I mean, like since the, like Nike in Vietnam and like in the 80s, and we've been freaking out about this. There's child labor laws all over the place. It's like a world health issue. It's like a it's like a like a, a basic issue of human rights. And so how is it that the devotees are so um, have such a blind spot as to not notice the incredible incongruence in 50 years, 55 years after Prabhupada started the first Hare Krishna farm. 50 years after he told us to have farms and get our own dairy from our own cows. And, and the dairy was first, then it was fruits and vegetables after dairy. Hmm. Dairy was the first thing. There's a letter to Rupanuga in um, 1975, Prabhupada wrote, where he talks about this, every temple should have a farm attached to it. And, and in the U.S., he said this, one of his U.S. GPCs, um, about the Atlanta temple. And so here we are 50, 50 years later, and you know it's still not being done. So we took it seriously, and we're in Laguna, which is like the like we don't have any land and we we got a farm together an hour away because you can always get a farm together an hour away yeah and then we we got some people on the farm and we produce some milk and we take care of some cows and we grow flowers for the deities and we grow some fruits and vegetables and 
and and then we can stand up and have some integrity and tell people we actually believe in protecting cows and and and, and taking care of the and when you think about cows they're like this docile domesticated animal that you know is 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 prey for so many predators that it has this natural ability to give way more milk than its calves can ever drink and then we produce lactase into adulthood which is weird we're weird animals and so we can we can digest lactose into adulthood you just can't get around it so you want to make the natural argument what's that lactase floating around in us for and so we produce lactase into adulthood the cows give way more milk than they than the calves can possibly be can possibly drink and they're just like these personifications of motherhood. As much as your guru is a personification of commitment, the cows are the personification of motherhood. And they they love us and they want to have a relationship with us. And 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 we benefit and they benefit. And it's uh it's a beautiful thing. I just noticed that your your icon is like a Joe Rogan-esque thing. It's like yeah. you're he's my he's my Ishta Dave. <laughs> <laughs> at least you models your logo after him right and so um yeah so i'm really proud of the cow protection we do i'm really proud of the temple that we got going on because now we're growing the Hare krishna movement you know um 9-11 wasn't chosen by osama bin laden arbitrarily in uh, 1787 i believe um on 9-11 the Ottoman Empire was beat back in Vienna. The Catholics beat back the Ottoman Empire, which was marching on Paris. Most people don't know this, but the Muslims occupied Spain for centuries, and they were making a move on Paris in the 1700s, right around the same time that we were fighting for our independence in the U.S. Mm. And they got turned back in Vienna, and that was the beginning of the end of the Ottoman Empire, which you know ruled a ton of the world for centuries and had its own white slave trade going on in Istanbul. And, um, you know, so, so the whole thing we don't even know, like for the most part, people don't even study historically, but um, I mean, historians study it, but you're, you're late, your average lay person doesn't know about it. And so Osama bin Laden picked 9-11 as a, as a, as a sign that, hey, we're, we're back. We got beat down 240 years ago. 230 years ago and now we're back and we're on the rise again and we're back and the jihad has begun again and we're marching again he it was it was very purposeful that's the date september 11th that's why i was chosen it's a big date on the islamic calendar for this reason and so i feel like i don't want to compare myself to osama bin laden which is what i'm doing because i'm just totally <laughs> twisted like that but <laughs> I feel really, I want, I want the Hare Krishna movement to expand. You know, there's some like amazing revolutionary people in the 70s that did some amazing stuff and started our movement and, and, and grabbed a bunch of land and built a bunch of temple, installed a bunch of deities. And it's time to start that movement again and push forward again and start doing amazing stuff again. It might look different. It might look a little different, but there's something about having a, a project and then you got to maintain it. As soon as you have a project, there's something for people to show up and do. And it's a lot less ethereal and you can't just stop it. And you got deities, you gotta worship them and take care of them. And you gotta you got people and you gotta to minister to them. You set up a system of worship, and you gotta maintain that. And if you have integrity, it forces you to, 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 to step up every day and do the right thing. 
And so I'm, I'm really proud of that project in Long Beach. And we have a whole thing going on there in Long Beach. And then the farm is something else I'm really proud of. And the work we've done in Laguna, I'm really proud of as well. And then we got the tours to India. And then like the small part of it is, you know, I got a couple of restaurants or a restaurant, a boba shop and a bakery. And I think we're going to be opening some more of those in the, in the coming years. It seems like it's a scalable model and we've, we've cracked the code and we figured out how to make it successful. I'm really excited about the vegan boba thing. Yeah. Really, my kids love boba. And so we decided to do vegan boba. You know, boba the way nature intended it. And so, and so no artificial dyes, no artificial colors, no artificial flavors. Boba really is what we call bubble, bubble tea. Yeah, like, what you call bubble tea on the East Coast, we call boba. I see. Boba is actually slang for female breasts. And so <laughs> the, the bobas, I don't, they, I don't think they look like a female breast, but they're like this, this, this cylinder shape, the spherical shape. They yeah. call them bobas, a slang term in, tai, in Taiwan. Bubble tea came out of Taiwan in the 80s. It came to the U.S., took off with a vengeance, especially in the Northeast Quadrant and in California. In mm. California, it's known as boba, and on, on the East Coast, it's known as bubble tea. It's these tapioca balls, mm. um, cassava flour balls, and then you know, and then you, you cook them in a brown sugar syrup, and then you put them into a drink. And so we use these really high quality decaffeinated teas, green tea and black tea. I like search the planet for like the best decaffeinated teas you could find. And then I, I, I got some, I got some of our students are baristas and with, you know, like 20 years experience. So they helped us develop all these recipes and like, we don't use any powders. Everything's made from scratch. We, we, we cook our own taro and then wow. blend it up. So it's like fresh taro wow. and everything's natural. And it's, it's, it's really high quality. I think there's a, there's a niche there, vegan, organic, healthy boba. And so I, I feel like that could be, that could, that could be like the next big thing. I'm really excited about that. And so my kids got me into it. We call it Shaboba. My daughter's name is Shardia. And instead of calling her Shara or Dia, which are both just beautiful nicknames, we decided to call her Shabu because we're just cruel like that <laughs> and she fought us for years and she tried to like reinvent herself with shara and it just never worked because we're merciless like that she finally embraced it and then we started calling her shaboba and then we're like we're gonna name our boba shop after you and it was like it's a big joke and then like a day before my wife's like let's just do it and so then we we made this cool logo our Ahimsa Yogi, instead of holding a bowl and a spoon, he's holding boba and a, and a, a cupcake. Wow. And, and uh, so we called it Shaboba. <laughs> Amazing. For the farm, in, in a little bit of details on the farm, does it does it require a lot of manpower? Like, you, do you have people living on the farm? Or do sure, they yeah, we have people living there. Does it require a lot of manpower? Yeah, farms require as much manpower as you can possibly muster. Right. I mean, man, if I had more manpower, we'd be growing acres and acres. We'd be growing all of our own, all of our own grass for our cows. Right. We'd be growing acres. I, I, I put orchards in. There's all sorts of cool stuff you could do with enough manpower. That's the great thing about a farm. You got the land, and then we got we dug a well, so we got land and we got our own water. We dug how, a well. And, how you know, big is the, the property? Nature is like ridiculous. I mean, you get. I mean, you anyway. You grow stuff, but. You get a little seed, you put it in the ground, and you water it, and all of a sudden you've got mandarins. Or you've got, you know, 
custard apples. <laughs> You've got like mm. whatever. It's crazy what happens. Yeah. It's just, it's, they just take sunlight and water and they turn it into this amazing plethora of different, you know, miracle things like foods and, and flowers and what have you. So we've got some good land. We've got some good people. Got a tractor. We got the bulls that can also work the land. And, uh, and how big is the property? 23 acres. And I'm sure like the growing season's like year round because of the California, right? We can grow stuff year round. Yeah. I mean, it's, we get frost, which, which is good too. Cause we get, we can make stone fruits. Stone fruits require a certain amount of frost every year. So, you know, your plums and your peaches and apples are a stone fruit, although they tend to have a stone in them, but they, they require a certain amount of frost. So we get some frost on the property. We got some greenhouses on the property. So if we don't want there to be frost, there's not frost and we can hot box stuff. And so, you know, we got, we got a variety of different, we actually have a variety of different climates just on the property towards the North of the property. We get a lot more frost towards the South of the property. We don't get any frost. Oh, like growing zones, like different yeah, growing, we got growing zones on the property. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's amazing. What's the farm called? Oh, it's just a, it's just a call the farm. We should probably we should probably name it. Maybe I'll ask Rodman Marsh to name it next time he comes out. <laughs> Great, and um, for the for the restaurant and for the farm and the temple, how do you keep track of everything? Like, as far as how it functions. Yeah, I'll drop I'll drop my other wisdom bomb on you. Sure, we'll do that. Yeah. So, <laughs> number one, commitment to your elders. Number two, commitment that then transfers over to your spouse. There is no perfect couple. There's a committed couple that becomes a perfect couple. And then number three, that same commitment that hopefully you learn from the beginning transfers over to your kids. Learn how to be committed to your elders and grateful for what they gave you. Then you become committed to your spouse and you become committed to your children. Real simple. It's real simple. And so the other thing is, I don't think everybody has to do what they love to do for money. You can have your side gig and have that be your main gig. Do something that doesn't compromise your morals. Do something where you can follow a Krishna conscious lifestyle and do it. Do something which works reasonably well with your uh, uh, strengths and virtues. And then have a rich life with your community of community service and volunteer work. And, and that's, that's a successful model, and that's what I do. And then the next one, judge your success by the success of the people around you, not just by your own success. And when you watch people around you come up, learn to feel in your heart like that's your own success. Wow. Become broad-minded enough to, 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 to feel um, love and success and accomplishment by seeing the accomplishment of the people around you who you love. And then the last one is, my life is about people and not projects. I don't keep track of all the projects. I take care of my people. I got a lot of people around me, not a lot, but I got a small cadre of people around me who love me and would take a bullet for me. And I love them and I take a bullet for them. And we do stuff together. And I can lean on them and they can lean on me. And many hands make for light work. And so I got people up in Long Beach who will, will not let that project fail.
They've got more memes than I've got. They're intelligent. They're managers. They're brilliant in their own right. They won't let that project fail. I got people in the restaurant who won't let that project fail. I mean, one of my students said to me, she saw the restaurant wasn't doing well, and I was trying to find some other business to do. And she said, you don't have to do another business. She said, I'll fix your restaurant for you and make it successful. And she quit her job making $100,000 a year to come and work for me and make a fraction of that to make the restaurant successful. Why'd she do that? Because I spent hundreds of hours helping her with her life and never asked for anything in return. Wow. I invest in people. And you and you know, you know invest in people and maybe half of them don't work out or two-thirds of them don't work out. But whatever, you did good by them. And then every once in a while, you find some gem and they give back. And they grow up and they want to give back and they want to become like you. And they imbibe your same selflessness. And then like, and then you take over the world. And so for me, I don't keep track of all my projects. I mean, I do, whatever. I have key result areas and I get reports and I look over the reports and I manage things like any halfway decent executive manages things. But, <laughs> but it's not like I'm an idiot, you know, I'm just I'm some kind of like Luddite, you know. But, um, and so I, you know, I use any number of different metrics and, accounting systems to, to track our progress and and uh and i people i delegate responsibility to then report back to me and you know we we use a racy matrix you know who's responsible and you know etc cetera, etc cetera, who's accountable and who's consulted who's informed i mean all the same models any strategic planner uses um and i do risk assessment when i'm making a new venture and stuff like that but i you know i get a cool idea and i share it with my people and we see if it passes muster and if they have a different idea then i can go along with their idea and i'm much more interested in consensus than in doing it my way yeah and then people buy into stuff and i'm bought into them and their lives and they buy into me and my life and we make miracles happen wow and so for me it's like that's life life is about finding people that that you can invest in and, and watching them succeed and, and having that be a beautiful thing. And then sometimes those people you invest in and, and, and you try to help succeed, they want to help you. And then that's just like, that's everything. And when now you've you got a bunch of people with your same level of commitment, but the next generation down, you can die a happy man because you right. know things aren't going to fall apart because you passed on your commitment and your gratitude. Really, it's gratitude at all. This will last little nectar nugget I'll throw throws your way and I'm gonna be all tapped out and nothing left. No, um, and so you know you it's all about gratitude. Gratitude is this feeling that I've received more than I deserve. And Cicero said that gratitude isn't just the greatest of all virtues, it's the parent of all virtues. Because when you feel grateful, you then do something about it. You become a better person. You become transformed. You become committed. You become voluntarily indebted to the people who gave you more than you deserve. You eventually start to think, how did I get more than I deserve? And you eventually come to theism. You take gratitude and you mix it with the miracle of consciousness and you arrive at theism and a thoughtful universe that's looking out for you pretty quickly. Right. And so gratitude is the birthplace of a meaningful life 
because it gives you a purpose and that purpose is to show your gratitude and to pass it on to the next generation and to help the next line and to do what was done for you for somebody else. And so we need to feel gratitude and let it transform us. And then we need to extend that as grace to the next generation so they can also feel gratitude and they can also be cured by that gratitude and they can blossom through that gratitude. So it starts with gratitude, which becomes commitment, elders, spouse and children all in a straight line, one after another, they fall like dominoes and they also get built like dominoes one after another. And then you invest in people and you love people and you make a life of taking care of people. And sometimes those people get it and then they become like you and they give back and you can die a happy man. And then it's, you're not alone anymore. You got a crew and you got a crew of really high quality people and you judge your success by their success right. and they'll judge their success by yours. And there's this natural mutualism. And the cow protection is a beautiful thing because it really demonstrates that we have integrity. We take care of the weaker members of society. We take care of them. We look after them. Just because of the way my brain works, somebody could say, well, they don't have, they can't make a choice. But just because, like, let's say you had a child who was mentally retarded. And I, I'm using the word retarded in the actual way it's, it's, it's used, an IQ below 70 and they had difficulty with the activities of daily living and they were dependent on you and maybe they couldn't even speak but just because they can't speak and just because they have a limited iq doesn't mean that they won't feel some value in participating in your family in have doing some chores around the house i mean i can remember being a young father my son was less than a year old he had passed stool without a diaper on which is just like the worst thing for anybody but for someone like for me who so fastidious and it's like it's like was especially horrific for me and i was cleaning him up and then he urinated and i'm just like oh my god it's like the worst thing ever and he started crying so i'm like holding him i got this huge mess to clean up and he's crying and I'm crying and I'm exhausted as a parent. And then my son starts patting me on the back. Like to comfort me. I, I can remember it. Wow. It's like one of those moments like I'll never forget. My firstborn child and the first time he comforted me. And so even if you're looking at somebody who's mentally retarded, who's incapable of speech, it doesn't mean they're incapable of feeling of value and contributing. And it doesn't mean they're incapable of communicating that to you. And so when we take care of cows, if somebody was to claim, well, they don't have any choice in a relationship. I mean, I don't know. Their, their choice would be, they'd either be dead or they're with us. They're producing way more milk. When we go to milk them, they come running to get milk. They love getting milk. They're licking us like crazy. They love us. They play with us, they frolic, they jump around. You can see their happiness, they recognize you. And so just because they lack full mental capacity doesn't mean they lack the ability to consent entirely. 
It doesn't mean they lack the ability to communicate that consent and that love and that relationship entirely. And so we need to take care of the weaker members, children, animals, and the cow somehow or other. It isn't just sound like the way we just pick that animal. It does something so valuable and it's so apt to be mistreated. And so when you're taking care of cows, it's like the Rolling Stones. Forgive the example. There's something called a rider. When you're in a musician, when you're a musician and you're in a band, then when you go to a venue, you have this rider. It's a multi-page document. In the, in the case of the Rolling Stones, it was you know hundreds of pages. And so there's it's a list of everything they have to do. You know, like how what the electricity what the electricity they have to have available to you is how the stage has to be constructed, how high it is off the ground, all about the pyrotechnics. It's important stuff because you have a bunch of people in one space. If you do it wrong, people can die. So they have this complicated rider. And the Rolling Stones buried on page like 87 or something like that, they had a statement. And the statement was, you have to have a bowl of M&Ms with all of the, I can't remember which one it was, the brown ones removed. A big bowl of M&M's, all the brown ones removed. And if you don't have that, you forfeit the entirety. You cancel it. We can't cancel the gig, and you're forfeiting the entirety of the, of the price. They just put that in there because if somebody did that, then you knew they read the document carefully and there's going to be no actual trouble. So they wow. walk in, they check, see if the bowl was there. That meant they read it with a fine tooth comb. If they <laughs> did, if it wasn't there, that meant they had to go double check all the big stuff like the electricity and all the other stuff to make sure that, they, that, that there was no danger. If you're protecting cows, then you've done the math and you've taken the trouble to live your life with integrity. And you've taken the trouble to live like a vertical life of integrity. And like you've, like you've looked from the top down. Right. And so by, just by looking at that one metric alone, it gives, you, it gives you a sense of the measure of the people you're dealing with. And so as a society, we need to do that. And, you know, Krishna's a cowherd and he loves the cows. And so we can express our love for him by loving them as well. Anyway, that's just one more little. Everything you say is like mic drop. <laughs> it's hard to do an interview with you because everything you say is like, boom. I love it. I love Are it. We good? Was this enough? This is great, but there's, uh, okay, for, for the people listening, there's a lot, it's like almost 70, 80 people listening. Uh, if there's any questions you want to ask Tukarampa, we're going to take questions pretty soon. But I wanted to um, ask you a little bit about faith. That I, un I from what I see from you, because as long as we dealt with like a bunch of big, difficult, abstract topics, you might as well just pick one that's like real easy to wrap up with, right? No, that's not. <laughs> just like for example, like all when I see you doing all these different projects. It requires a lot of faith that things are going to go well. Things are going to things are going to work out. Where did that faith? I mean, that that's not true. I fail all the time. Really? Yeah, I have all sorts of business ventures that didn't pan out, and projects okay. I got involved in didn't pan out, and people I invested in didn't pan out. Right. My life is. I mean, we could we could take a we could do the cup is half empty thing and look at my life as is you know, one string of failure after another. I think Winston Churchill said something about, you know, success is just learning how to fail without any loss of enthusiasm. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I have faith 
in my tradition, in my conception of divinity, in my elders. You know, it's funny, but we like to separate our conception of divinity and our tradition from our elders. But there is no Chaitanya Mahaprabhu without the six Goswamis telling us who he was. There is no Jesus without the apostles telling us who Jesus was. Our faith in our conception of divinity is exactly equal to our faith in our lineage. It's their version. There is no Elohim and Yahweh without Moses. There is no Allah without Muhammad. Right. At some point, you your faith in your elders becomes yours. Just like when you're a child, you learn how to speak from your parents. You're just copying them. But eventually, English or whatever language becomes yours. And you have a black button language. And you can do anything you want with it. But the humble beginnings of faith is you really have faith in people. And that faith in people becomes faith in the deity. Becomes faith in the process. Two right. things. Faith in the object and faith in the process. Jiva Goswami defines it like that. Your Shravan Guru gives you faith in the deity and faith in the process to achieve the deity. In our case, it would be Krishna slash Chaitanya and Bhakti. And so um, we develop faith in people. At a certain point, you've worked with that faith enough where that faith belongs to you now. At that point, your faith in those people and your gratitude to them is limitless because you actually get what they gave you. Your faith in them increases. Your indebtedness to them increases ad infinitum. Mm. And simultaneously, that faith is now yours. And provided you don't blow it by making offenses, it becomes one with your heart. And you are filled with faith because of your experience. And your faith in people turned into your faith in the conception of divinity, your faith in the process, your experience with that process, your knowledge of that process, and your conviction and your lived experience of that process such that you know it works because you've done it. And then you can move forward and you can succeed and fail without any loss of enthusiasm. And you can lean on others when you're weak and they'll hold you up. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu used to dance and he would fall and Nityananda Prabhu and Advaita would stand on his side and hold him up so he wouldn't fall down. And so we move forward in life and we need that stick of support of the Vaishnavas and we surround ourselves with that fence of the devotees and they keep us good. Radhanath Maharaj one time told me in the early 90s, right when he first uh, got back to ISKCON, he said that uh, even before you have a full experience of Krishna consciousness, your love for the devotees will keep you strong and keep you faithful. Wow. And so that same way I say I invest in people and, and, that's, and, I, and I judge their success, I also locate my faith with my elders. I see that birthplace of it. It might have become mine over the decades. It has. And so now it's in, it's in my bones. I can't separate myself from it anymore. But I mean, that's it's 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 it, 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 you need to trace out where it comes from, and so you can create it, cultivate it, 
And then once you have that, you can move forward in life. And whether you succeed or fail, it's just, I mean, one time one of Prabhupada's disciples went to try and start a temple and he failed. And Prabhupada said, oh, Krishna didn't want the temple. Like, come back to the temple. It's okay. Like, Prabhupada was so kind. You know, he didn't, he didn't say you failed, therefore you're nothing to me. Yeah. And so if I'm judging my success by other people, and I'm judging my success by my relationships, then that's how I'm judging my success. And if we all fail together, that's a win for me. And if I succeed alone, that's a fail. When you when you say you see that other people around you succeed, that's your that's success for you. Yeah, Is I can even really- go further. I can even go further with that. When I see them succeed and becoming better people. So it's fun to watch them succeed, become millionaires. I got a couple of size students become millionaires with me coaching them. And it's like that's like keeps of fun and great. And I feel and then they're gonna be able to do so much with that. And I'm not anti-money or anything like that. But but what's even more important to me is watching them succeed in terms of developing integrity and character. And so I'm I'm making moves. I'm trying to succeed. I'm trying to like hustle. I, I, I think of myself more as a hustler than an entrepreneur, but whatever. I'm hustling, but you know, I can, I can divide my hustle into like ways I'm trying to make money, but I'm really trying to help people change their hearts. Right. And so I, I can divide that into two categories. And this one is way more important to me than the, than the monetary one. Does that principle of other people succeeding around you only for leaders like for example you're a leader in the community but for someone I think everybody's not- a leader i think everybody's a leader that's that's what it is everybody's got to become a leader and so maybe you lead like three people maybe you just lead your children everybody's right. first of all i mean the whole thing you, you shouldn't become a parent unless you can deliver you should become a guru or a parent that whole statement from the fifth canto mm-hmm. right yeah nasiat guru you should become a guru or a parent or a teacher or this or that because ultimately you're leading all of them a parent is a leader a spouse is a leader just because you're older people are going to look at you as a leader just because you didn't die <laughs> yeah right <laughs> people are going to look to you to be a leader and so we all need to cultivate these qualities maybe we're going to do it on a different scale maybe we're going to do it on a different scale maybe our calling to be a little different Maybe for some of us, it's going to be more like in your face. And for some of us, it's going to be a little like less in your face, a little more like in the background. But everybody's a leader. Everybody's got to learn to invest in people. Everybody's got to learn to make a distinction between material success and, 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 and success and helping somebody develop character. Everybody's got to be grateful to their elders and let that turn into a limitless gratitude that causes them to pay it forward and, and create a legacy. Everybody's right. got to make their faith their own. Everybody's got to take risks. Everybody's got to conjecture. Everybody's got to understand themselves and then like move forward and do some calculated risks. No one's got it all figured out. So these principles I'm trying to throw down, I, I, I think that they hold for everybody in all places in all times. I don't think that they are specific to me. Maybe the way they manifest is specific to me, but with a tiny bit of work, um, these things are universals as far as my intelligence will allow me to see. And as far as the faith thing, I got a lot of conviction because I'm doing something valuable and whether I succeed or fail doesn't really matter so much to me. I'm moving with grace. I'm trying to be in that divine current. I'm trying to do my elders proud. I'm trying to live a life of integrity. I take what they say. 
I write it down. I look at it every single day of my life and I try to live by it. And so where's the loss? Right. Yeah, you know, I, 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 the whole idea of like if you lose or succeed is based on this idea that your success is based on some intangible you can't control. But I can control myself. I can control my integrity. And so whatever I do, win, lose, or draw is a win for me if I've had some character and been virtuous and, and done my teachers proud. I mean, I, 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 I sincerely, I don't care if I die unknown and forgotten. If my guru smiles, if Krishna smiles, that's enough. I'm happy. Wow. <sighs> Amazing. So much to learn from you, Prabhu. Wow. Let's go to the hey, question. Oh, let me just, one more thing, just because the way sure. my mind works. Sure. Um, that might sound disempowering. Or like a codependent relationship but my gurus represent my highest ideals they are the personification of goodness of truth of beauty of ethics of morals of integrity of virtue and so when i align myself with them just like when i align myself with krishna krishna is not distinct from the quality of goodness rather krishna is personified goodness right and so my realization is these people represent all that is good and beautiful in the world and so my faith in them is also my faith in goodness, in truth, in beauty, in ethics, in integrity, in compassion, in love. And so if I make them smile, I know I make them smile. Their smile isn't arbitrary. Their smile is not um, wanton. Their smile is not cheap. Their smile is not um, a rolling of the dice based on personal biases. Their smile is based on uh, an objective alliance with truth and, and virtuous conduct. And so I know I can make them smile if I live my best life. Does that make sense? Yeah. I love that. Thank and you. Aristotle talked about this. For him, it was arete. Arete. Which leads you to becoming a, a eudaimon. A good, soul, a good soul, a good spirit, because you live with integrity, with virtue. His term, the Greeks' term for virtue is arete. Should we take okay. questions? Yeah. Thank you. Okay. A lot of the questions here were answered by Prabhu's, uh, you know, talking before this. So let's look at some things that we can elaborate on here. Um, this, this is cool. When you are a part of a small community, what is the best way to start a cow protection program? And what is the pro best process of action? We have access to land. Sure. Call me. I'll work. I'll walk you through it. You, Call you him, have land. Call him. got some land. You can rent some land on somebody else's land. You can pay a cow to take care of a cow for you and never kill it and give you the milk from that cow. You can just pay for a cow to be protected. You go to a yeah. farmer, make a friendship, Pay him to take care of one of your cows for you. Rent a piece of land on his farm and take care of the cow if you've got enough where you can drive out there. Figure out a place a little bit far away from you where this stuff is going on. There's always crops being grown within like an hour of any major city. I mean, even New York City, drive out an hour, you'll find crops being grown. If you drive north, yeah. northeast, you'll find it. And so you can go anywhere in the country 
And if you drive half an hour, an hour, there's land. Somebody's got some land. They're trying to work that land. Make a partnership with them. Get yourself, get yourself committed. You can do it with money. You start paying money and you start raising money to pay the money to that farm to take care of that cow for you and never kill it. And then all of a sudden you guys get sick of paying all that money, that farmer for doing that. And all of a sudden, boom, you get a piece of land, rent the <laughs> land, rent the land. If you have to Yeah. get something going, find somebody who likes to live on a farm, get a little something going, find somebody with a big backyard in a suburban thing where they've got like the, like the, you know, the, the, you know, like the R20 estate or whatever it is in your, in your state where they're allowed to have animals. You yeah. can have a horse, you can have a cow. Figure it out. I mean, I remember um, Rinda's parents, Gorvani's uh, wife, they had a cow in their backyard in Washington, D.C. for a minute. I don't know if they still do, but they had a cow for a minute in their backyard. They had a big backyard. They lived in a the suburb. They kept a cow. We just got, you got to make yourself do it. You can also buy dairy from an Ahimsa dairy. Right. So, you know, Gita Nagri shipping all over the country. You can start buying dairy from an Ahimsa dairy. So, you know, temples can get together. Three, four temples can get together and find some place which is equidistant and start a little farm private. Three, four temples. Maybe they can't do it by themselves, but all of them together can do it. Maybe one family by themselves can't do it, but maybe 10 families can do it. Start getting up on your soapbox and making some noise about it. Chastising people for their lack of integrity. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You heard it here, folks. This is where we, you know. You got to get off the ground somehow. Those are some like right off, you know, you know, like those, those that's just me spitballing with you. But if you call me up. We'll give you a contact. Call me up. You hit yeah. me up. You find me on Instagram and message yeah. me. I'll give you my number and we can, we, we can toss some ideas around, figure out a way to make it work for you. Very cool. Amazing. Awesome. Uh, okay, here's another one. Um, Tukaram, as an example, can you talk about how the success of the Escondido farm came about because of the failure of initially trying to build a huge temple? Not I mean, I could. I don't really want to. <laughs> okay. I mean, you, you said it all. There you go. They were going to build a big project. <laughs> they got the land. They didn't do anything. My wife hit me up on Ram Nomi and said, hey, they're not doing anything with that land. Go do something there. And I said, I sent a bunch of quotes out of Prabhupada said, why are you letting your land lie vacant? There's like dozens of quotes <laughs> of Prabhupada says you should be growing stuff everywhere. And so then I convinced them to let me do a farm on that land, threw hundreds of thousands of dollars into it, and made something happen. And now we still have a desire to build a temple. But in the meantime, we got a nice farm going. And now I'm committed. I got no way out. How I many no cows are there? They got no way out. We got cows. We got land. We got devotees there. And so when we built a big temple, that's got to be part of the project now. But like, you know, we're like, we're in now. <laughs> You're responsible for us. Amazing. We're like that foster child that won't go away. And now you got to adopt us. <laughs> wow. Tukaram uh, Prabhu, so that looks like all the questions that, I mean, all those ones were, were answered uh, in your talk. But uh, if you want to leave us with something. Because I haven't left you with enough already. I know. I, I mean, I'm sorry, but this is what I do to all the guests. I put them on the spot, and you're 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 okay with being put on the spot. But some some uh, you know last lasting words. No, I mean I've I've said what I want to say. I mean, <laughs> Come on. we should. I mean, okay. Here's here's something I'll leave you with. Yes, yes, please. We need to feel some gratitude to lead to commitment. 
which then leads us to love other people and beautiful things come out of that and happiness is in your pocket. We need to feel gratitude, which turns into a transformation and commitment, which then has us doing something for the next generation and gives us a life of meaning and carries on a legacy. And that legacy isn't just about projects, it's about people, loving people and caring for people the way someone loved and cared for you. Yes. And that's a successful life and no material success or failure can get in the way of that successful life. You'll always land on your feet. You'll just get better and better as time goes on. If you wanna cultivate gratitude, you just have to honestly look at the miracle of life, the miracle of consciousness, the miracle of the oxygen exchange, the water system, the way our planet's set up, and all the things we've been gifted. And no matter what you've been through, how much heartache you've been through, how much pain you've been through, how much suffering you've been through, you were given the gift of life. You were given a mind, consciousness, the capacity to think, a body to work with. These things trump any negative you got. And so honesty and just honestly looking at our existential situation and the incredible blessing of life, what to speak of the developed form of life as a human being, where we can ask the biggest questions. That's enough to make you grateful. And so if you want to take it back a step further, how do I become grateful? You honestly take a look at all that you've been given. That's exactly what I was looking for as a lasting words. Thank you so much. Really, really nice. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm so in awe I, after hear, hearing your story. I mean, I, I've known you for a number of years, but I didn't know all this, all these details. And I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that with us. I'm really honored that you have me on your program. I'm really impressed with the work you're doing. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I wish you, you all success, and let's talk soon. Yes, for sure. Stay on, Prabhu. I'm gonna just turn off the live. Oh, another thing was if you want to follow Tukaram Prabhu. On Instagram, he's active on Instagram. He gives live classes almost every day. Uh, you can follow him at, at tukaram.das uh, on Instagram, and you can message him there if you're trying to get in contact with him of the devotee who is trying to contact you regarding the cow protection and whatnot. So um, that's episode 71 of the Late Morning Program. We're trying to get to 100 episodes by the end of the year. So uh, thank you, everyone, for your support. And uh, you'll find this podcast on Spotify, YouTube, Google, Apple, all other kind of podcasting platforms. Tukaram Prabhu, stay on. I'm just going to turn off the live. Thank you, everyone. Have a great evening. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna.